welcome to the St. Barnabas Bible Podcast for our next episode. I'm uh, joined by Zach, as last time. Hello, everybody. And it's good to have you with us again. I hope that you found the, uh, the previous podcast helpful. Once again, we'd love to hear your feedback. If you have feedback, pass it on to us so we can get better at this. Uh, just a couple of housekeeping things to start with. A couple of weeks back now, we had our first conference. The recordings of that are now available online, so go to our website. You can find those. And in fact, those those uh, conference talks are going to be helpful for as background to some of the stuff we're going to be talking today about today uh, in this podcast. So if you want to catch up on that conversation, head to the website, uh, grab those. Very easy to download, only two euros. And if you're at the conference contact us and we'll give you a code to download those for free. So go there, do that. You'll benefit from it, I think. All right, t- today we're going to pick up on some of the things that we were talking about at that conference, um, some stuff that's come up and a bit of further reflection, I think, on some of the themes. Uh, we were thinking about the church. What is the church? What do we do together as the church? We're going to pick up on some some of those, those themes. We will try to get into some of the details if you weren't at the conference um, one of the things that we spoke about was how the church has been influenced by alien philosophical ideas uh, ideas that kind of tend to split creation into two um, and not just not just distinguishing different aspects of creation but actually separating creation into sort of immaterial and material aspects and putting all the value on the immaterial aspects of creation and how this sort of has affected the church Um, we're going to go into detail and try to see some more uh, practical and concrete ways in which this sort of thing has happened and kind of actually helping us to avoid that with a biblical understanding of creation being two different dimensions of God's one reality that he himself created, which I think can put us on the right track as we think about worship in the church and church life in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one of the things we touched on at the conference was this idea, uh, this shift in our imagination that, um, that everything that is really true, everything that has meaning is actually outside of history, outside of our bodies, in sort of a realm of pure idea um, that doesn't have any existence in time and space and is wholly other from what we experience as, 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 as humans in, in bodies, in, in time and, and, and history. And that has a lot of impact on how we, how we think of the church and what we imagine the church to be. I had someone come up to me after the, after the conference and ask, you know, have I been so influenced by this this imaginative shift that it's hard for me to see. And I think that's that's true for all of us, isn't it? We swim in these waters of the philosophy of the last couple of hundred years, and it's quite hard to see where we've been influenced by it, what the practical outworkings of that that shift is in our in our thinking. And I think it's important, too, to remember that in the last couple of hundred years, as you mentioned, these things have become extreme. But the church has been dealing with this issue forever, actually, since the beginning. Yes. Since its inception. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's important to remember that. I mean, even you see this little bits in the New Testament about people telling people not to worry about marriage, not to don't touch, do not taste, do not handle, uh, basically denying the goodness of God's creation within mm-hmm. the uh, New Testament itself. And then the philosophical framework within which that is understood. I mean, because, of course, in the Greek world, uh, you have the idea of the pagan gods and the philosophies of the day tended to react against that idea and make God into something wholly other 
in the sense of not being able to express himself, reveal himself in this world except through shadow. Uh, and this is, I mean, like the platonic idea that this world, the world as we see it, the world of, of, of senses, is only a dim sort of uh, reflection of what really is there, has been affecting the church and this sort of move away from history and the created order. Yeah. So it's the church has been dealing with this for a long time uh, in its fight against, it was, a, it was a twin fight against paganism on the one hand and against this sort of uh, reaction to paganism on the other from the philosophical schools. And you see that the church has, with varying levels of success, has dealt with that in the past and it's still with us. And it's become even more extreme yeah. as uh, the, the philosophy, the history of philosophy has developed. Mm-hmm. So you're thinking particularly with people like... Kant and and onwards. Yeah, I think that's where it really, really becomes, becomes really potently but, potently yeah. part of our. I guess imagination is the right word for it. the The fabric of 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 how we think the world is and how we as humans are within it. Not necessarily consciously. It's not not necessarily yeah. that we're all going around going, "All oh, right, this is." Uh, all, all things that have meaning are in this noumenal realm, and we can't access them in any other way than this and this and it has no bearing on this it's not that we're consciously doing that the whole time but that it's become part of the fabric of how we think and imagine the world to be so uh, what we wanted to do in this podcast is uh, to help us see some of the practical effects of this kind of thinking in how we imagine specifically the church to be and what we do together in the church so that's what we'll do for the rest of this podcast um so zach how do i know how do i know whether i've been affected by this uh, this philosophical shift Give me one of the symptoms that I need to look out for. Um, I would say that I would start out from from the end. So we'll do a little backwards here with a little bit of what they call eschatology. Eschatology is just the, the study of the last things or the things that lead toward the last things. So when we think about final salvation, uh, I think oftentimes we think of it in terms of spirits being with God, uh, with God who is spirit uh, somewhere in heaven. Oftentimes this is... Um, pictured or illustrated as people with wings on harps or even worse people becoming angels which by the way is nowhere in the scriptures uh it's really a repugnant (laughs) idea Uh, impossible impossible yes uh but but this sort of general mentality that the goal of life is to go to heaven when you die uh is basically uh, a symptom that we if we believe that uh, it's a symptom that we've been affected by this sort of splitting of worlds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because basically what we're saying by that is this world, which by the way God created and is good, we're saying it's not really worth anything and the best thing to do with, uh, with this world is to get, is to get, get out of it alive. You know, mm-hmm, or, or mm-hmm. alive, you know, In dead really. Yeah. But you know, yeah. they can live on uh, in heaven bodiless without any sort of connection to the world uh, that we live in now. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's a big one, I would say. Yeah, and, and without any connection to... I think in a lot of people's imagination, heaven is a firstly a place where there is no bodies. Mm. Um, secondly, a place where there is no history. I think that's a, an important one. Nothing ever changes in heaven. It is always exactly the same. There's no... Um, there's no, no story there, as it were. Um, I mean, this is not the picture of heaven we have in... In the Bible, uh, in the Bible, heaven is a toing and froing place. You know, there's a lot going on. I mean, just look at the Book of Revelation and all the things we see happening in heaven. This is not an ahistorical, outside of change 
realm of creation. Absolutely. You get, you get that from the very first words of the Bible. I mean, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The yeah. heavens is an aspect of created reality it and is, therefore yeah. is subject yeah. to the, you wouldn't call them limitations, but the aspects or the features, the characteristics of created reality. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, yes, it is subject to time, duration, living. Uh, and, and again, there are a lot of mysteries about what heaven is, uh, and it's used in different uh, we ways. We don't know all of those parameters. We don't know exactly right. how time or history works in heaven. But exactly. to say that there is no time or history or, or no individual beings, mm-hmm. or, you know, all, and that it is just one unmoving, unchanging unity of something or other, of yes. idea... Is just not the biblical picture. That's right, yeah. And I, I also think that when you conceive of the final destination in that way, it has a whole lot of implications for how you conceive of life on earth now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it comes. It's, now, this is not just about a kind of wrong idea about a doctrine that really has no relevance to our lives now. It certainly does have a lot of relevance. And by the way, it's important to clarify that I think Christians throughout all ages have believed that when we die, we do go to heaven. Mm -hmm. Our souls Mm -hmm. go to heaven. Our our life is in God's hands in heaven. And Paul says this very clearly in Philippians chapter 1, that he would rather be in Christ's presence than be in the body. Mm -hmm. So there's this clear distinction there. But that's not the end of the story. Let me just interrupt here. Christ is in heaven. Does he have a body there? Yes, he does. Yes, yes he does. Yes. I mean, that's an important point. It is. I mean, and, and it feeds into this very uh, same mentality that uh, sometimes we think that Christ rose from the dead only to prove that he was still alive or something, but then he shed his body when he, he ascended into heaven. That's not true. Yeah. Uh, and the point of his body is it is equally comfortable in heaven as it is on earth. Mm-hmm. It is physical. Now, it's a different kind of physicality. He's not subject to sin or death or any of its horrible effects, but it's no doubt that it is physical. That's why he shows, one of the reasons why he shows his disciples the scars, and clearly he eats, he does things that only someone with physical extension can actually do. Mm-hmm. So that's that's an important point. And Christ is uh, human, and he remains human forever, and that is critically important for salvation and for our understanding of who we are as human beings as well. That Christ remains human. It wasn't just to accomplish the task of salvation that he was that he became human, also to reign and rule in his death and resurrection and now ascension. So mm-hmm. that, that's an important point. And, and on the point of, uh, you know, uh, from the very beginning, in the early creeds of the church, there is the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. I believe in the resurrection, and it doesn't say in the resurrection from the dead, although that would have been true enough, of course. It's, it specifically says the resurrection of the body uh, because uh, it, was, it was a point that needed to be emphasized and it was fought for. It was the resurrection. And many of the early objectors, philosophical objectors to Christianity, objected to the new sort of religion in their minds, the new sort of thinking, on precisely those grounds. Mm-hmm. That a resurrection cannot happen. It was a, it was a mistake. That an eternal, uh, a human body that lives forever uh, into eternity uh, is actually a contradiction in terms for some of these mm-hmm. philosophers. But the Christian Church has always insisted on this, and we need to insist on it too. Yeah. We really need to have yeah. that sort of but, idea. Because in their mind, if you've escaped into the realm of meaning and and whatever from the body and from history. Why would you ever want to come back? Exactly. Yes. Um, yes. And, and the church has always stand, stood 
diametrically opposed to that. And, and, and a good way of thinking about it is for these ancient philosophers and philosophies, the body was a sort of prison from which you could escape. Mm-hmm. But in Christian theology, it's very explicit. The mm-hmm. body is a temple in which the living God inhabits. Mm-hmm. And this and this has implications for so much of our lives now, including Mm -hmm. and particularly as we're speaking now of the resurrection of the body. Because Christ was raised from the dead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that means that we will be raised from the dead in a like manner, in the same way, uh, with these bodies that are no longer subjected to death, to sin, and to all the horrible things that Mm -hmm. have come from that. So So there we go. That's the first diagnostic question. If you think that the goal of of salvation and of, of, of human existence is to spend an eternity disembodied in an ahistorical heavenly realm and not think about the resurrection of the dead, um, then perhaps your imagination is being influenced by yes. by modernism. And just to give a little biblical uh, foundation for this, there are many places in the Old, but in particular in the New Testament that talk about this, but just read the last two chapters of Revelation. It's not uh, people going to heaven as the final state is heaven coming to earth and mm-hmm. renewing it mm-hmm. with God's power, presence, and life. So. Mm-hmm. All right, here's the, here's the next thing. Is it possible, or rather, is it natural to be a Christian and not baptized? The answer, of course, is no. Uh, and I think... How does this tie into what we're talking about with this, this split? Well, I, I think for two reasons. One, because it's obvious that baptism is a sign that uses very earthly sort of materials, not earthly in the sense of dirt and dust, but obviously water. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very of this earth, of this realm, and it requires, it's sensible. You feel it, you see it. I think there's that one dimension to it, and therefore it can't, if we're, if, if we're affected by this way of thinking, mm-hmm. um, we naturally don't think these sorts of things can be of very prime importance. Yeah. We don't believe that things that happen in our bodies or in time can create anything of significance. You know, we don't believe that they can have a lasting significance on me and who I am and, and what I live for now. They happen in time and on my body. What power do they have to create any, uh, or to be used to create any anything real you know because real things are not touched by stuff that's down here that happens in my body or in history real stuff always comes from this invisible idea realm but actually baptism is a a thing that happens physically at a particular time on me and my body that in that, that god uses to create a new reality in me beyond that and and we've we've lost that from our imagination of what baptism is um we sort of see it as a uh, just I don't know how. Do, how do you think? We, how do you think well, we see it? I think it's often seen as a as simply a a, a sort of act of obedience uh-huh. that we do it simply because Christ told us to do it. Now, of course, it is that, but it's so much more than that. In the end, it's not so much something we are doing, but it's something that God is doing to us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is. I mean, of course, it is obviously something we are doing, and we want to do it because Christ commands it. But like so many of the commands in Scripture, they're not. They're not just so that we can impress God or do something only it's for our benefit as well Mm -hmm. especially when it has to do with uh, these sorts of uh, sacramental um, realities Mm -hmm. so I think it's important to um, to to first get that in our minds that you know it's not simply or merely an act of obedience that we can kind of do or it's not simply something that uh, is altogether disconnected from the Christian uh, 
faith and identity as who we are as Christians. It's something that's basic. Mm-hmm. It's basic to the Christian identity, and it's something that God is doing to us. So, yeah, I think if we just see it as some sort of act of obedience and not a sort of declaration which affects a change in status. Mm-hmm. Then, and what is that change in status? Well, we are... We status. Are, oh, sorry. We're, we're getting no, no, into these American-British things here. Yeah. Pretty soon we're I'll have continue a to say war here. Yeah, I'll start. I'll continue to say status, and okay. you can say status. You, you, uh, you keep going. I'll, I'll, pull your royal card. Me do me. On do me, you. me. Yeah, yeah, you do it. you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Now I see where we are. <laughs> uh, okay. Where were we? Now, change, change of status. <clears throat> um, here is uh, okay. We are now members of God's people. Now, now we have to be careful here too, and we have to be careful. This is not an automatic thing that works, and irrespective of how we live, we can just do whatever we want because we've been baptized. And I understand that reaction, and it's important to uh, for us to say that our baptism uh, needs to be uh, lived out, it, uh, that our faith mm-hmm. needs to be lived out, mm-hmm. of course. But the point of what I'm saying is the place where we see people becoming Christians is is not simply in our own closets. Uh, baptism is a public sort of declaration that changes someone's status. This person is now a member of the church, mm-hmm. a member of God's people. And in their lives, they no longer can be pagans. They can either continue in their Christian lives or they can be apostates, mm-hmm. uh, people who are, who are once part... Of, of God's people but have now left yeah. they're, they're not they're no longer pagans they I, can't go back to that I think this is another sign of this shift in our imagination of what we view the church to be in, in many of our minds someone who has never been a Christian or never been baptized is in the same category for us as someone who has been baptized and doesn't live out their faith but those are two different categories really yes you know someone who has been baptized claimed the name of christ in whatever way or had the name of christ put on them is not in the same category as someone who is a complete unbeliever and never had that history of being in and near the people of god yeah that's true and they're actually in a much more precarious position it's more dangerous yes because they've been close they've been brought near Mm -hmm. and to we all know that being near to god's presence is an absolute blessing but it's also dangerous Mm -hmm. as we see in all of scripture including in the new testament uh so uh the temple was a dangerous place uh for god's people it was a place of blessing Mm -hmm. it was a place on where god's people place their hopes mm-hmm. uh, but it was also a dangerous place that you did not approach uh, without fear and trembling and of yeah. course again we have joy and we have blessing yeah. but we want to be careful here because when someone has God's name put on them they're in a different category with all the proper qualifications yeah. we absolutely do absolutely want to reject uh, the idea that these things work automatically, that irrespective of what yeah. we can do, we're baptized, we're good, we're in. And in no fact, way. what we're saying here is presumption on that is a worse sin. Put you in a much worse position. A much worse position. Yes. But to be part of God's covenant, to be part of God's covenant people, mm. is an incredible blessing. Absolutely. And to tr- to treat that as nothing, that that name has been put on you, that you've been given access into that people is a horrendous thing. Mm-hmm. To be in the category of covenant breaker is to be in a different and altogether worse category, Far really, worse, yes. than, than covenant alien, someone who's not been joined into this through yeah. baptism. Yes, and, and therefore the reaction ought not to be to say when we live in a world that is full of baptized people who don't seem to be living out their faith and th- mm-hmm. this world 
has existed throughout. I mean, not throughout, but at times in church history. Uh, our reaction to that is not to say, oh, well, that means baptism is not important. No. But to emphasize its importance and proper place. Uh-huh. Uh, and in doing so, we not only encourage people to be baptized if they are not, to understand the importance of their own baptism, but we also, it's a warning to those who have been baptized and are not living their faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're in a much dangerous position than the average yeah. uh, person, the, than the person who has never uh, yeah. been a part of the Christian church at all. Yeah. To, to, in a sense, to them, we're saying, you are part of the church. Mm-hmm. Act like it. Otherwise, it will be far worse for you for trampling underfoot this thing that you've been given. Yes. And um, you're, you're quoting from Hebrews uh, right there, this trampling mm-hmm. under uh, underfoot. Uh, and that's that's an important passage in dealing with this. And in, there's there's the passage in Hebrews six, the first few verses there that I believe is speaking about the sacraments. I think it's quite clear. Uh, it, it uses some of the language of the Old Testament, but it's fulfilled clearly in the language of the New Testament sacraments, including baptism, but also the Lord's Supper. And it clearly indicates both in chapter six, but also in chapter nine, which is where the tramp or uh, uh, chapter nine chapter. Anyway, one of those chapters later, uh, it, it indicates the, uh, the, the, the seriousness and the danger in which people who have trampled Christ's word, Christ's witness, Christ's blood under their feet. And that language is used. Mm-hmm. And it is in very serious warnings are given. But that doesn't negate its power. In fact, it emphasizes it. Mm-hmm. That proves that these things are real and they have real implications for the Christian life. Yeah, yeah. And one of those implications, to go on to the, next, the other sacrament, is, you know, it gives you access to, to the table. Yes. Uh, to the communion table. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's the point of communion? Is, is, there, is there anything special happening? Or, or are we just sort of doing it to remember? I mean, what sort of views of communion do you see around that? Yeah, I think people know uh, in Protestant circles, um, again, there are reactions. We know we have to we have to say these things. And reactions to reactions. And yes. then reactions up onto those reactions. One big reaction after another. But um, again, we're not immune to that sort of thing. But I think it's important to recognize it and to uh, try to be biblical and to have our focus where it ought to be. Um, but uh, I think when obviously people understand on the basis of scripture that communion is about remembering, mm-hmm. uh, this is oftentimes you do it in remembrance mm-hmm. of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's very clear that it's, uh, it's about remembering, but I think what our problem is we don't have the right view of what remembering is. Uh, I think we, we think of remembering as just kind of putting something into our mind or, or having something again occur to us after having forgotten it or after having not thought about it. That's what it means to remember. So every time we celebrate the, the Lord's Supper, we're just kind of remembering that this happened uh, and obviously thanking God for it. So I don't want to say that people don't view it as a blessing. Obviously, they, they would, and that, that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's so much more than that because remembering in the scripture when the psalmist uh, again, Psalm 89 is a psalm I love. Uh, but in 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 that psalm, when the when the psalmist asks God to remember, he's not asking God simply to think about something that he had forgotten. Mm-hmm. But he's asking God to bring it into reality that promise that he had he had given to them and how he had acted on it before. To act according to the promise that you've given. That's yes. what remembering means. Yes, remember and, it yeah. and act according to it. Yes, and even in doing so. You bring it to present, Mm -hmm. that reality. Again, we don't like thinking like this. It it gets into a little bit of a... We're such rationalists in so many ways that uh, anything that kind of 
that feels like mysticism or that feels like uh, participating in something that might make us feel a little weird or might put us into a different category is not uh, something we like doing. Or not all of us. I'll speak for myself. That's who I am. Uh, but there is something very mystical about that where we are participating in something that has happened before by remembering it. Now, again, we have to be careful. It's not a repetition of Christ's sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Once for all, author to the Hebrews is very clear about that in chapter 10 and throughout, especially 7 through 10. But when we remember it, we are connected to it in a very special way as to receive its benefits and blessings in that way by... by uh, by Christ being present among us and remembering us as we remember him. You just said Christ being among us. We touched on this last time, but a lot of us have in our imagination that because God is everywhere, there is no sense in which he particularly gathers with his people Mm. in the worship service. I think something similar happens with communion. We are so aware of Christ being with us everywhere you know in our imagination that's that's what we think that, that there is no sense in talking about christ being particularly or specially with us in I, communion yeah yeah and, and obviously there's a reaction that a right reaction against various uh ways in which christ might be with us in communion from church history um mm. so yeah. and i think i want to say this i i think that those reactions are wrong ways of under some understanding something that is really there oh of course so yeah. it's not a complete yeah. sort of oh you're way off the mark here no. it's it, it because it's especially in again in the roman catholic church where they have the, the idea of transubstantiation which is based on aristotle's categories which in general okay i like aristotle's categories better than plato's for instance but i i i think that 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 kind of twists it a bit and kind of puts us in a different kind of philosophical or realm of ideas, which is not, it's alien to the scriptures, but it was a wrong way of trying to understand something that was really there. And we can't get around it. I mean, we get the word communion because, uh, the apostle Paul says in chapter 10 of first Corinthians that, you know, the, the, the cup that we share is participation, participate, we're communion, same word there in the body of, uh, of Christ. Um, or blood of Christ with the cup and body of Christ with the bread. Now, we have to actually try to figure out what that means. Mm-hmm. We can't just say, oh, that's just some symbol. I mean, that's a very vivid way of speaking about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And in the next chapter, in chapter 11, when he really gets into talking about communion, he says that people who are taking it flippantly, um, some of them have died. Now, again, that's not just something Paul's saying just happened to happen so he's kind of just telling him that's something that has a deep basis in the old testament mm-hmm. uh you think about nadab and abihu you think about aaron's sons the ones who approached god or hop mm-hmm. phineas later eli's sons who died as priests but especially nadab and abihu who approached god offering strange fire mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and they died uh, so there's this sense of being in god's presence being a dangerous thing if we do so in a flippant way and you mm-hmm. get that repetition of that within the communion service and again it's really important to emphasize that in the old testament there was a clear understanding that god is everywhere Mm -hmm. solomon says it when he's dedicating the temple the highest heavens cannot contain you but that did not mean for a moment that god did not have his presence in a special way at that place Mm -hmm. he Mm -hmm. put his name there his blessing there his glory there and i think we see those patterns repeated within the worship and especially within communion so we still believe God is everywhere, of course. We can pray from wherever we are, uh, and that's a great and comforting thought. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's a rather frightening thought if we're sinning. But we not for a moment say then that 
therefore that idea precludes the notion yeah. of God being specially present yeah. within the worship service and particularly within the yeah. sacraments. Yeah. I've heard it um, illustrated a little like this. I'll try and remember the details of the illustration and get it right. Um, if you arrange to meet someone and they say, right, I'll meet you at 10 o'clock outside the, outside the train station, for example. If you then go the other direction and try and meet them down in the park, you can't then be surprised if you don't meet them. Mm-hmm. And God has said to us, well, I'm going to meet you in these things. Yeah. You know, now it might well be that you bump into your friend that you've arranged to meet somewhere else at some point, or he comes to find you somewhere else. We're not saying that there is no scope for that kind of thing happening. But if God has said, I'll meet you here, then it is wise of us to say, all right, well, we're going to go there to meet God. Mm-hmm. That's obviously an imperfect illustration in, in many ways. All illustrations are. But... It gets to it gets to the heart of it. I mean, this is what God has said, both in the old and the new. Mm-hmm. And I think, okay, going from old to New Testament, sometimes we we misunderstand. I think how how the old transfers or is is transformed into the new. There's no doubt a whole lot of transformations, especially with related related to worship. Obviously, the sacrifices and all that. But its essence is not tra- is not transformed. We still come together as the body of Christ. To worship God in the place where he said his name is. And um, not only that, we come to sacrifice, not to sacrifice, but to celebrate that meal, which is what happened with the priests after the sacrifice. They celebrated the meal. Well, after the sacrifice, we don't do the sacrifice. That's already happened. But we celebrate this meal together. Uh, And I think uh, Christ is specially present. And I think he's specially present, too, in a covenantal way as well. You notice in scripture that when covenants are made between individuals, they would often have a meal. I think of Isaac and I think his name is what, Abimelech, maybe? And uh, I think it's Genesis 24, where he's, he's, he has a dispute with uh, one of the other leaders in the area. And then they, they come together and they make a covenant. It's, it might be translated as mm-hmm. agreement, but the word in Hebrew is the same. And they ratify that, show their friendship with a meal. And this is what's happening when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And he's present. On Sinai, where the elders of Israel go up and have a meal with God. And they ate and they drank and they saw God, is what it's yeah. like to say. So. Yeah. so that's a pattern throughout Scripture and it carries yes. on into the New Testament. That's, that's what course, we're doing. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, um, so what we're saying is that these things that we do in time and history in our bodies, that we do in week in, week out, that they have the that God has given, that God uses them to affect us, to create in us something that wasn't. And because of this imaginative shift where we don't think that that's possible in this lower story of creation, we have come to undervalue the things that God has said he will do through these these things that happen in time and space, in our bodies, in our histories. Yeah, and I, I think we've come to overvalue certain things that we connect with this sort of direct connection mm-hmm. to God. And again, you, you always want to put emphasis where emphasis needs to go without rejecting things, without reacting to things. And obviously the idea of reading the Bible and praying and doing those things by yourself is a great thing to do. And there is no doubt about it. So not for a moment would I ever say that, would I, would I ever discourage someone from doing that? Mm-hmm. But, um, Along with the rejection of these things where uh, you have these kind of material elements you don't think, and they're connected to a church that is material and all that, we, we, we tend to emphasize the things that we see as more direct connection to mm-hmm. God. Things that can bypass an, an institution. Absolutely, or, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the big problems for people with a church is that 
you know, we come to the Lord's table and not everyone can just go and help themselves. You know, it, it's administered by people set aside for the purpose yeah. institutionally. Um, Again, that because it has been abu- abused, we, we tend to think of church authority as non-existent. <laughs> but we come back to it again and again. It's an old, an old saying in the history of the uh, Reformed churches that the abuse of something does not negate its right use. Mm-hmm. It's very important. It's mm-hmm. a very important thing. Uh, and I think the Reformed tradition has, has gotten that in a lot of ways. Uh, it hasn't reacted in the same way that some of the other traditions that began at the Reformation have uh, to the errors which it perceived in the Roman Catholic Church. It hasn't overreacted to them, but it's tried to, to kind of find a biblical path forward on the basis of that mm-hmm. rather than just reacting to it mm-hmm. and going to its opposite and automatically thinking because this is wrong, that its opposite must be correct. Mm-hmm. And that's a wrong way of thinking. And mm-hmm. I think that affects us and affects, affects all of us. I'm not, I'm not saying that we aren't affected by it as well. Going back to um, this sort of putting the center of the Christian life in personal devotion rather than mm-hmm. the church and her work of word and sacrament. Even there, we, we, we often seek for a direct experience, a more direct experience of the vertical, um, often. It's not uncommon for us to focus on trying to gain some sort of mystical emotional experience from our reading of the Bible rather than just reading the Bible. Trying to say that reading is not actually that useful for what God wants to do in us. What we need is to use that to springboard into some mystical experience by ourselves and only then is it useful. Hmm. Um, Reading is something that involves a medium, words on a page, me using my eyes to do it and and often in our imagination that's not enough to actually get anywhere in our devotional life and so we're a little bit dissatisfied if we sit down with our bible and we just read it and then we understand it and it's become part of the fabric of our thinking and imagining we what we 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 only really feel satisfied with our personal devotional life if it transcends sitting and reading and if it becomes this mystical experience an ill-defined mystical experience I, certainly that's that's the experience that i've seen and i've had at, at large chunks of my life yeah you can't get away from yourself i mean uh, that's the thing you're you're a body i mean mm-hmm. like uh, we, we are we are bodies and it's unnatural for a body to be separated from a soul and not that happens when you die but death itself is not natural mm-hmm. and so everything we do is mediated and if we are looking for an unmediated sort of apprehension of god uh, god and his presence and his power or even we talk about you know uh, when you're reading in your in your closet you're still using your two eyes you're like you said we're, mm-hmm. we're still reading off a printed book and so obviously if that's what you're looking for you're not going to get it and mm-hmm. even in the most mystical sorts of experiences now i do believe god gives people experiences and and that is a great it's a great part of the Christian tradition, even from the beginning. But when I'm using the word mystical, I'm trying to think about it in terms of an unmediated sort of, and this is the, the wrong definition of mysticism, I think, having it, instead of being it something that we can't really explain or something that we, we can't really express in words adequately as we often had, and Paul had these experiences and all that, and those are great, those are good parts of the tradition. But we often try to define it, I think it has been defined, and this is as a... Um, sort of unmediated apprehension of God that somehow goes directly to 
the I mean, like to what? Yeah. To what? We're all created. Everything about us yeah. is created. I mean, you could say so to your soul, but even your soul is it's created. created. Yeah. <laughs> and this is why I mean, I think you see the influence of it. Like, I mean, like it's not for nothing that mysticism flourished in a Neoplatonic world, where you know the sort of spark of divinity in everyone, uh, in that it's connecting, it's divine connecting to divine in that sort of way. Whereas we are created in God's image beautiful and incredible blessing but not a part of god and therefore not connecting with god on that sort of direct every time we connect with god it's mediated and analogical and these are important things to remember not false not um useless like vague shadows but mediated for our sake obviously we can't look at god and live uh but also uh for for the sake of uh, basically for the sake of having a relationship with God, that, that there needs to be that sort of mediation. Mm-hmm. And that mediation is the flesh, the mm-hmm. flesh. And Christ became flesh to reveal God's word. So I think that that's a helpful way of thinking about it when we are tempted to believe that these sorts of private experiences or private devotions are the um, way to, to meet with God. Yes, they can be. And I would never, ever not want someone to do that but when we think we can kind of get away from ourselves as a created reality uh, and try to just apprehend God's truth in some mystical way in that negative sense of the word mystical then I think that um, we're on the wrong path and we're being influenced Mm -hmm. by by this way of thinking Uh, particularly to return to our theme of the church if we start to emphasize that personal instead of you know as the center rather than as the church being the center of the Christian devotional life. Absolutely. I mean, from the very beginning, from the very beginning, it was not good for man to be alone. Now, again, obviously, sometimes it is nice to be alone. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not denying that. But what, I'm, what I mean by that is that human beings were created to be in community. And this is why when God calls people, he calls groups of people, he calls families, he calls, um, you know, David, David's sons and, and, and that dynasty or dynasty. I gotta get this correct here, and um, and I struggle to understand what you're saying until you translate it for me. So I'm, I appreciate I'm here for you. it. I'm here for you. I'm <laughs> condescending here. Uh, but even in the New Testament, we see the people of God. The people of God. There is this um, collective dimension which is critical to it, which does not absorb the individual or individual responsibility, but is the context within which the individual and individual responsibility operates. And that's called a covenant. Mm -hmm. That's what a covenant is. And a covenant is between two parties. It obviously implies more than uh, one party. But in the case of God's covenant with his people, it's not just God's covenant with one person. It's God's covenant with one person and those people whom that person represents. So there's always this collective dimension from the beginning. So Mm -hmm. it's the people of God. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's really important for us in, in... who have been affected by this way of thinking uh, to understand that um, without going to the opposite side, because that's an issue too, you know, basically absorbing the individual into the collective, which basically seems, oh, I'm covered. I'm part of this group, so I'm covered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not good. And I think the idea of a covenant helps us so much there because it not only uh, encompasses the collective, it also finds room within that idea of a personal response Mm -hmm. and personal responsibility. Covenants are made up of individuals, but they are not an. They are more than an individual, and 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 those connections between individuals are sort of semi-organic, but they're also legal and uh, they're legal and personal. And yes, yeah, a covenant is such a helpful concept because it's so comprehensive. Uh-huh. It it 
encompasses legal actions, but that legal actions is all that legal action is always understood within the framework of persons. Yeah. It's never an abstract law coming from the heavens. It's always a law that's understood within an agreement between two parties or within uh, a king sort of uh, giving his terms to the people. So there's it, it, always a personal element to that, but there is a legal framework within that. Um, or we're talking about the, the, the sort of um, interplay between the personal and the collective. Covenants help us there because covenants are often between individuals, but those individuals are oftentimes representing large groups of people, even on a human, when there's a treaty, for instance, treaty between two nations. It's that the leaders make the treaty, but those leaders represent a whole lot more and it affects a whole lot more than just those Two people. Mm-hmm. It's the nation that's involved, and then you see this with God's covenants with God's covenant with us. It's through Christ, obviously. So, in, in a sense, it's a, it's Christ is the one who who is the mediator of a new covenant. But it affects all of us collectively because we are in Christ. So, kind of holds those ideas together, mm-hmm. and which makes it such a helpful biblical concept. Final question, I think, to try and touch on some of these themes, and we briefly mentioned it in our previous podcast. Online church. What's the big problem with it? I think that, well, if we have a view of worship that Christ is present in a special way when his people come to gather together, then the online sort of church becomes a kind of a weird third thing. You Mm -hmm. know, are we gathered together when we were online? Okay, it's much better than nothing. Uh, I would much prefer to have that if people cannot come together. So, But it's not really gathering together. We're not together. We're not physically present in one another's yeah. presence. Yeah. I mean, what, what, is, what is gathered together in that situation? If anything is gathered together, it is disembodied voices thinking of ideas together. Yeah. Now, that's the most it can be. Yeah. But the church gathering is so much more than that. It's a thing that actually does involve bodies. Yes. And it does involve a shared history with a people together. It involves coming and doing things together. It, it, it cannot be what it is without those things. You know, if we imagine church to be nothing more than a chance for education or nothing more than a chance to um, think of something good together or even feel something good together uh, at the same time with people we're not really connected to, then... I can see how we might imaginatively leap to online churches, basically those things. But if we, if we remember that to be human is to be embodied in a particular place in a particular time, and that the church is a physical, you know, the church involves more than just mental assent to something or the stirring up of a particular feeling through the presentation of ideas as a lecture or a motivational talk. If we realise that church is more than those things, then it becomes imaginatively impossible for online church to be the same thing. Yes, yes. We, we sometimes make the mistake of thinking that the difference between online church and church with presence, physical presence, is sort of the difference between online education and being present. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might say, oh, it's better if we can to be present, but this is a good alternative. But... Since I believe that scriptures portray a view of worship that is more than, not less than, but more than education, uh, and I believe that it has to do with God being present with his people being present, then we have an issue then with online church um, 
being a substitute for uh, church as it's as it's been conceived mm-hmm. since its inception. It's a real um, it's a real problem because we need to be present because God is present, and to be present, our bodies need to be present. That is uh, that is important because we are and like again, our bodies will be redeemed. It's not just our souls that will be redeemed. Uh, it's our bodies. And therefore, we need to honor God with our body, as the Apostle Paul says. Now, of course, he's talking about sexual sin in that context, but it can be applied uh, by by imagining that we can kind of get the same thing out of something, but being far away from it, being not present with God's people. In a sense, we're not honoring our bodies mm-hmm. because we recognize that our bodies are far away. Uh, so I think that it is important that church being living, acting together, being in one another's presence, that dimension to it needs to be emphasized. So with, with that, I think we'll, uh, we'll draw this to a close. Zach, any final words to people listening? Any closing charges? Remember the value of the church yeah. and the privilege it is yep. to be a part of this church. Don't be afraid of, of because the, the church, people have abused the church's power mm-hmm. in the past. Don't be afraid then to, to make use of it in a proper sense. Yeah. To under, it's here for us. And every single institution has been abused. The family's been abused. The school systems have been abused. We all reckon the government. Everyone knows that. <laughs> and, and, but this does not mean that these things cannot be immense blessings for us. Let's not think differently about the church. Mm-hmm. The church... There have been abuses of power, and those people who have abused their power will face God for that, because that is a terrible thing to do. But let's not imagine that because people have abused that power, that therefore there's no use or value in it. Mm-hmm. Let's not give up mm-hmm. on the church. Yeah. Uh, it is a beautiful and um, amazing privilege that mm-hmm. we have. So if, you, if you're part of a church, learn to love her. If you're not part of a church, find one. And, and be there regularly. Great. Well, that's it for this episode of the St. Barnabas Bible Podcast. Once again, um, let me remind you that the conference talks are available on the website. Uh, if you want to hear more about this topic, uh, go there, download those uh, and enjoy them. Um, but until next time, goodbye.